Welcome to the Small Machine Talks, a conversation about literature and art, about duende and queerness and coping and tea, border blur and misfits and community, secret places, ragged edges. Angel House Press. I'm your host, Amanda Earl. Welcome to the Small Machine Talks. This is episode 99, and I am here with Joanna Drucker. Welcome, Joanna. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for for being on the show. This is this is part of a of an odd year of uh, shows that I'm calling. I don't know what to call it exactly. It's called Extra Lit or page adjacent in which we talk about things surrounding the page. And, and as, as we go through the year, we'll come up with a better a better title for, for maybe a better name for it at some point. But um, one of the reasons we're here is to talk about uh, Joanna's book, Inventing the Alphabet, The Origins of Letters from Antiquity to the Present. And I'm gonna put a link to the book. It's from University of Chicago Press uh, 2022. I'll put a link to the book in the show notes and also to your site. And I think I, I will add, if you don't mind, I think I'll add your Substack too, because you've been writing a lot of really- Please do. So I'll add that to the to the show notes as well. And those will be put up on our website, which is smallmachinetalks.com. So to start, I would like to ask you, what would you like listeners to know about you or to know about well, you? <laughs> you know, I think of myself as an artist and a writer um, who makes books. And I got sidetracked into academia um, about 40 years ago, um, through passion and interest, actually. Um, but I started out really as a writer. And, you know, I think if, if I'd give everything else up, I would never want to give up writing. And so being lit adjacent is perfect <laughs> for me. Um, and certainly issues of the page and how to pay attention to the page and think about form and format and visual forms of writing have all been, you know, central to my theoretical practice, my artwork, creative work and scholarship. So, you know, all those things come together in in my work. So I've had a more um, elaborate academic career than I imagined. Uh, I originally thought I would go back to school because um, I went back after being out for eight years and I'd gone to art school as an undergrad, which means that I had very little academic training um, in those days. It was really studio based, um, which was great and has served me well. But when I went back to get a graduate degree at Berkeley, I thought, well, I'll get a master's degree and I'll be able to teach. Um, I'll learn some history of printing, history of the book, and, and then be able to teach letterpress and studio art. But within the first semester that I was at UC Berkeley, I you know, sort of suddenly had this world open up to me and I became so interested in theory and in history and in all kinds of dimensions to, you know, the visual um, uh, forms of language. I, I just, I was so naive. I had no idea what there was. I, I didn't know what the word linguistics meant. Oh yeah, me neither. Um, me neither. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know what that was. I did semiotics. What is that? A skin yeah. disease? You know, I mean, <laughs> exactly. spots all over, you know? I mean, yeah. And so for me, academia was, um, you know, something I hadn't anticipated as a career. And then uh, I've had this 40 year career. So it's amazing. 
Yeah, that's great. Congratulations on that. That's 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 superb. I remember when I was a kid, I wanted to learn every language in the world. And then <laughs> in, in first year university, I had this great um, prof. It was an elective course I was taking in linguistics as part of my French degree at U of T. And, uh, and it was her name was Elizabeth Cowper, and she was one of the best uh, instructors. It was a huge lecture hall full. Yeah. Of- yeah had no idea what linguistics was. And I went, I finally realized I was in a class where I was learning every language in the world. Yeah. So yeah. It was perfect. And from then I, I also studied a lot of linguistics as well. And, and it's become a, well, I, I miss, I almost miss those days, but not quite, not quite. <laughs> I, yeah. I first met you actually, I first, I met you in person only once so far. And that was at the Canada concrete uh, oh. 2018. I know it was, it was some time ago, so it's hard to, it's hard to um, remember that, but that was a great conference organized by Robert Stacy of the English department at Ottawa U. And you gave this fantastic talk. I remember, I don't remember exactly the subject, but I remember it was all like all the sort of visuality uh, through um, time and and, uh, and uh, it had visual poetry and I was just bouncing on my seat. It was just such a fascinating conversation. So that was uh, that was great. And then that was a nice I, conference because there was oh, a very strong feminist presence and yeah. a wonderful sound poetry presence. I mean the Canadian, I mean the Canadian tradition of visual poetics and also sound poetics. It's very rich, and I felt like I got inspired by being exposed to some of that, both in a kind of historical lineage, but also in its current iterations and enthusiasm. So that was a fun conference. Was. I came as a, as a non-academic person and Robert Stacy always does this great thing where he invites people in the literary and, and community and he'll, he gave, I, I don't know if I'm allowed to say, but he gave us a, a good, like a student discount basically. To right. So good. <laughs> yeah, that was really good. So I was there and I gave a talk on, on the Vispo Bible as well. So it was fun. It was a fun experience. And then after that, uh, a little, a, a few years go by and then um, I invite you to be part of Judith Women Making Visual Poetry. And you wrote the, the, uh, the forward and also uh, were a contributor to the book, which I was really grateful for. So, uh, and we've continued kind of, of uh, um, an association uh, through since then. So I've been, I really am I'm, uh, excited uh, to have you on the show. And also just uh, thank you so much for all you're doing and all you've done, even for me, <laughs> you know, just to. Well, I mean, Amanda, that Judith was such an undertaking. And in addition to the monument that it became, you did that database that is just yeah. fantastic, where you basically revealed the, you know, like, I mean, didn't you get up to a thousand women who have done visual poetry in that? There database? were more, there were something like 1100. And, and, and there are more, I haven't, I don't, it's not something I keep at at the yeah. moment it, it's still there and if someone if someone mentions someone I'll, I'll add them to the list so it's still there yeah. I, should, I should dig up the link and, and put that up again and start spreading that around which yeah, yeah that, that that's was, helpful that for great. me too. <laughs> well <laughs> we had so much help with that I mean it was people um we contacted people from all over in, in the in the visual yeah. world and in, in uh, publishers uh, visual artists there were just all kinds of uh people contributing to that and yeah, it was it was such a heartening thing to um, to learn. 
So yeah, so that there's that, and we're I think we're gonna in the in this uh, when we talk more um, further on, I think we're gonna also talk more about visual poetry, also gender, which are important uh, subjects <laughs> for both of us. So we'll get into that. But the alphabet is also uh, a, a fascinating subject. And when I saw your book, I thought, well, I, that's it. I have to have her on the show now. And uh, well, not I actually wanted to have you on the show for a long time, but. Uh, this is uh, this is a good opportunity. So the book is called Inventing the Alphabet, the Origins of Letters from Antiquity to the Present. What would you like listeners to know about the book? Thanks. Um, well, the first thing I want people to understand is that this book is not a history of the alphabet. And um, it does have a summary about the history of the alphabet, which is a writing system that emerged in a cultural exchange in the ancient Near East between the kind of cuneiform scripts to the north and hieroglyphic to the south. And I say a cultural exchange because the alphabet is premised on an understanding of the sound, uh, the, the significant sounds of language and the capacity to actually break the Semitic script down into um, those sound values. And, you know, there's so many things people don't actually know about the alphabet and its history. So it's important to understand how it came into being, but also how it spread and modified and became, you know, changed into its script forms changed. But there's only one alphabet. And people say, what alphabet? You mean yeah. the Roman alphabet, our alphabet? And I say, no, there's only one source. It's the proto-Canaanite taproot that emerges around, again, around 1700 BCE in the Levant, and it spreads and it becomes Arabic, it becomes all these South Asian alphabets, it becomes North African alphabets, it spreads around the Mediterranean, becomes Etruscan, Roman, Greek, and so forth. So Cyrillic. Um, and so it, and sometimes they're deliberate interventions, as is the case with Armenian, where um, you know, Bishop Mashrops decides that there are certain sounds that need representation that weren't included in the original set. So, you know, new new signs are added. Um, but this book is not a history of the alphabet, though right. that is utterly fascinating. We pretty much know that history. I mean, not in fine-grained detail, but in the big picture. And excellent archaeologists and um, epigraphers, those are the people who study inscriptions, um, right. uh, have have pretty well sketched that, um, you know, that history. I, you know, Joseph Navad, David Derringer. I mean, these are figures who are giants who have, you know, again, described that particular course of events. But my book is a history of how we came to know that history. Right. So it's a historiography. And, you know, what's interesting to me, honestly, Amanda, is that if we were in a science technology studies field, and I had written a book called Inventing Astronomy, mm -hmm. people would expect it to be a history of knowledge technologies. You yeah. would know that, yes, first there were observations, then there right. were <laughs> kinds of instruments and measurements and calculations. Then we got optical lenses, then we got radio telescopes, you know, and so forth. And the way that astronomy becomes transformed through that succession of inventions and innovations you know, th that would make sense, right? It's like, oh, yes, of course, you know, knowledge changes. 
And <laughs> that's what this book is. And people are baffled by it for some yeah. reason. It's like, okay. <laughs> oh my God, what is this book about? Like, you know, why do you start with texts and then biblical texts and then images and then compendia and then antiquarians and their coins and cabinets and then archaeology and then epigraphy and then digital things. It's like, oh, that's so confusing. It's like, why is that confusing? I don't know. I, I didn't find that. I, I thought it was a pretty logical structure to me. I yeah. mean, you know, like, uh, and it it had a fairly, I mean, there it, it wasn't always chronological. So you had to go into more depth in some areas, but it had a fairly chronological. Yeah structure in my opinion anyway well i'm i'm glad and and it was meant to um and of yeah. course each successive generation builds on the knowledge that's been you know sort of accumulated um you know before and but what is so amazing to me is that no one's ever traced this and no one has ever put together this history this historiography um and and also because certain chapter or certain, you know, I meant, you know, chapters in this history, not so much chapters in the book, um, have been, in a sense, superseded, right? So people think, well, you know, talking about did Moses receive the alphabet yeah. on Mount Sinai or, you know, were angelic alphabets, you know, sort of copied from the constellations in the heavens or, yeah. you know, were was there actually an alphabet that was given to Abraham by the angel Raphael, you know, when he was, you know, <laughs> leaving, you know, Canaan. I mean, it's, you know, I mean, going into Canaan, it's like, you know, so people think of these things as as no longer valid. But I don't agree. I mean, I think, you know, respecting the cultural otherness of the past means granting to, you know, theoretical insights of former, you know, moments their own authority. I mean, these were belief systems that yeah, were exactly. completely explanatory, you yeah. know. So why wouldn't we consider them valid on their own terms? And um, so anyway, so 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 the book is this exhaustive um, study of um, how we came to know what we know about the alphabet. Right. And, yeah. So and it begins in antiquity because even though the alphabet is older than Greek antiquity, the yeah. earliest existing text that comes forward to us is a text by Herodotus from 440 BCE or approximately. So that's where we start. And and the tradition of citing Herodotus and using yeah. Herodotus as an authority continues into the 20th century. And there, that's interesting because Lillian Jeffrey, who's like was this absolutely incredible classicist, goes through, creates an inventory of every existing archaic Greek inscription and that's is trying to match the geographical location, the development of the scripts and the linguistic groups and the cultural sites with Herodotus's text. Wow, that sounds like yeah. an undertaking. Yeah, it was quite an undertaking. No, she was a brilliant scholar. Um, but it's just to show that that text remains, um, you know, a text that that is cited, not just as a kind of anachronistic anomaly, but as a text whose contents still have some reference value for figuring out, um, you know, that moment of transmission into the Greek um, uh, mainland, or the Greek islands and then the Greek mainland. 
And what was the long answer? Sorry. No, no, that's good. The the longer answer is the less I have to talk, which is always (laughs) better. That's always better. I like that. That's it. Um, Can you talk about what prompted your interest in the alphabet and what made you decide to embark embark on this particular work? Sure. Well, there's two histories there. One is the apocryphal tale I always tell, which is that um, when I was a child, I had alphabet wallpaper in my room. And my mother, who was a very literate and interesting woman, said to me one night, every word in the English language can be made from these letters. And I looked at the letters and there's, you know, 26 letters. And I'm like, no way. There's just no way. You know, you've got to be wrong. And so I would lie there at night trying to think up words that had letters in them that weren't in my wallpaper. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) (laughs) so I was this little brat you know a little wiseacre little brat um (laughs) and guess what I never found any words had extra letters um but uh this project inventing alphabet really began when I first started back to grad school as we were talking about earlier and um the very first week or so that I was at UC Berkeley I went into the stacks of Doe Library, which Mm. were filled with things that had not yet been culled from Mm. the stacks. A lot of things now are in special collections. And I pull off the shelf this book that was by um, Baron von Helmont called Alphabet of Nature. And it was in a little vellum, you know, it's a tiny volume bound in vellum, like it's whole little, you know, I mean, you know, it's soft vellum, it was like creaking. And it had these images in it that are in the book that, you know, show the Chaldean letters in this, you know, crown of this head. And then the head is sliced so that you can see the anatomical view of the organs of speech. And there's a comparison being made between the organs of speech, like where the tongue and the glottis and the esophagus and everything is, and these Chaldean letters. And I'm like, what is this? And it was a little 17th century book with these engravings in it. And I'm like, what am I looking at? What what are Chaldean letters? Yeah. What, what 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 is Chaldea? And Chaldea is the place that Abraham left to go to Canaan when the angel Raphael gave him an alphabet, <laughs> supposedly. But that sparked my interest. Us, I'd never seen anything quite like it, and um, so I started into this investigation. And in my first year as a grad student, I wrote a, you know, a paper on these, uh, you know, esoteric, unknown texts. And then, um, I mean, some, most of these texts are somewhat known within very narrow fields of study, but they're not known in a more popular way. So that uh, finding Baron von Helmut's Alphabet of Nature really was the start point. And I did write another book on the alphabet um, that was published by Thames and Hudson in the mid nineties, um, which is called Alphabetic Labyrinth. And that, that book was a study of the ways in which the alphabets have been interpreted as a visual symbol. So mm. all kinds of interpretations have been layered onto the alphabet. Um, you know, really, we can hardly imagine, but, you know, everything from, you know, analyzing it in terms of, um, you know, circles and lines and the gendered proportions of those two things, um, looking at them, it did, you know, all kinds of stuff. 
Um, but that was just about visuality, you know, visual interpretations or interpretations of the alphabet as visual forms. So when did when did the book become when did you know that you were going to make a or at least draft a book like a collection of of these um, articles on on the alphabet? And yeah, this came about really only about sort of, you know, 15 years ago, I would say, yeah. and got I got serious about it in the early 20 teens. Um, I had other projects I was working on, but yeah. this was kind of, you know, I mean, I've published 18 academic books after exactly. all. <laughs> so, stuff. You do a lot. So yeah, other projects. Yeah. <laughs> but um, so I had other things I was working on, but um, I was on leave at one point in the early 20 teens, um, I had a you know a quarter of leave, and that was when I got focused on it and started to realize what I was going to have to go back and read and study if I was going to do the book. I had a lot of notes and a lot of materials, but I didn't have the systematic overview. And yeah. also, what's also interesting, people don't realize, I think, if they're not involved in scholarly research, but tracking things down is a challenge. So I had a book, there's a wonderful book called Pentagraphia that was published in 1799, um, written by a man named Edmund Fry. And Fry was a punch cutter and a scholar and a, part of a printing family. And this compendium of 300 plus scripts um, includes things like some of these magical alphabets and celestial alphabets, as well as, you know, scripts from around the globe. Um, and he cited all of his sources. So Thank tracking, <laughs> yeah, even to the page number. Wow. So, so tracking the sources in Fry was one way to kind of begin to see what was the state of alphabet studies at the end of the 18th century. So I was able to use his text as a start point. But you go back into some of these books, like one of the books I have is a text by Claude Duray from, you know, it's either 1613 or 1617. Great, big, huge, fat volume set in six point type. <laughs> All this stuff is by hand, right? And this is over a thousand pages, this, this text. All of the sources that Duray has are kind of buried in these in in the text oh, you know wow. it's not like they have a bibliography it's not like they have footnotes like all of those conventions are not fully developed hmm. so somebody says s-p-a-n dot you know and it's a s-p-a-n who is s-p-a-n right hmm. and it's like how do you find that it turns out to be ezekiel spanheim but how do you know that yeah so, really yeah, exactly. So the the research just to identify the sources and then being able to see some of these things, you know, the some of them are so rare. Um, there's a beautiful poster by Angelo Roca, and there's only two copies in existence that I know of. And, you know, so one's at Harvard and one's at the Vatican, you know, kind of thing. Wow. So, yeah. Yeah, so tracking down the materials was its own challenge. It has a little bit of Indiana Jones feeling to oh, it. Oh, yeah. It's so much fun. Exactly. <laughs> we'll get you the hat. We'll get you that Indiana Jones hat. Um, funny. So I could go on and on. I mean, but luckily <laughs> at the very end of the process in twenty in the 
spring of 2019, I was awarded a fellowship at the Beinecke. I was the inaugural Distinguished Humanities Fellow at the Beinecke. And um, so the Beinecke owns pretty much everything. Not Angelo Roca, but um, I mean, they do have his uh, his his book, but not this um, poster. But, you know, it meant that I could really go back through in a very thorough way, almost all the materials that I wanted to look at as references. Well, it, and, and of course, uh, for the listeners like, uh, because the listeners are a lot like, we have a lot of uh, listeners in common with our our pursuits. There are people who are salivating right now over the possibility of of uh, having access to all those materials. So that's that's really neat. Uh, yes, you listen with envy. <laughs> well, and look, digital, you know, facsimile, digital, yeah. you know, digitally remediated, um, you know, primary sources have become such an invaluable sort of tool for scholarship. So between the Internet Archive and Europeana and the Bibliothèque Nationale and, you know, other, you know, institutions, it's amazing how much you can find um, online to go back to and look at carefully and engage with. Right, right. So um, what are some of the issues surrounding the origins of the alphabet? In, in, in a few, in a few like, I know there's a lot in the book about it, so you get to do the elevator pitch part of it. <laughs> well, I mean, the, you know, one of the things that's interesting is just that um, up until really the 19th century, there were no um, no, no pieces of physical evidence of the early development of the alphabet. And so unlike hieroglyphics and, well, cuneiforms basically sort of, you know, resurfaces in the 19th century as well with excavations. But, you know, it's just like the, the, the search for um, material that would have belonged to that period of first appearance is charged with political issues, religious issues, beliefs, you know, um, you know, problems of identification, you know, it's like, you, you can find an inscription. And, you know, but, but the, the corpus of Semitic inscriptions is, is small, right? Uh, I mean, hundreds, right? As compared to cuneiform, which is tens of thousands, right? I mean, there are thousands and thousands and thousands of cuneiform inscriptions and, you know, Egyptian inscriptions and even early Chinese and to some extent New World, but that's a more charged issue. But, you know, so there's no physical evidence. And so, you know, the desire to validate biblical history was yeah. part of the desire to find this evidence. And I mean, there's still people out there looking for the tablets that right. Moses brought down right. from Mount Sinai. Okay, mm-hmm. um, whatever. And um, so, uh, so, so the issue of of when, where, and precisely, you know, what within what kind of cultural crucible the alphabet emerges. Um, there's still plenty of debates, and you know the the field of expert epigraphers is is sufficiently small that there are heated exchanges around interpretation. Because again, if you find an inscription, you still have to figure out what language it's in. Yeah. So the letters are there, but is it Hebrew? Is it you know, Nabataean, is it Moabite? Is it Canaanite? I mean, you know, what is what is the the language? And so interpretations can be quite speculative. 
Right, right. And there was, a, of course, and, and of course, the Greek alphabet was the one that people associate with the alphabet. A lot of people, like they yeah. sort of, there's a kind of a, a bias, I guess, towards the classicism and in, 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 in of, uh, of exactly. There's a whole sort of history of erasing the Semitic origins of the yeah. alphabet and attributing to the Greeks a kind of cultural superiority. Yeah. Now, you know, Semitic languages, which are what are all over the ancient Near East, because um, it's all the Semitic language family, um, Afro-Asian. Uh, it's all Afro-Asiatic, of which the Semitic languages are the largest group. They don't need explicit vowel notation. And when you get into the um, Indo-European languages, they do. And right. so for the Greeks, the system that came that spread around the Mediterranean in which they adopted wasn't sufficient. So again, go back to Herodotus. He will tell you, Palamedes invented, you know, this letter and this letter. And we also added this because, again, it was necessary. But the Greeks didn't invent the alphabet. What they did was add vocalic notation, that is, notation of vowels. And um, but, you know, there's a whole, you know, group of, you know, sort of scholars who for years would say things like, you know, the Greeks invented poetry. Excuse yeah. me, what about Gilgamesh and the Old Testament? <laughs> the Greeks invented, you know, and, and and so it was it was a bias, um, yeah, you know, without doubt. That's it. We we talked about we talked about how long the book uh, uh, took, but can you? Uh, I, one of the things that's really quite fascinating about the book is how there are so many images of the alphabet from various sources as well. So, and that was really helpful to have the visual evidence and kind of magical yeah. and to see these uh, old uh, things. So, um, I guess uh, can you talk a little bit about your research research process? Like, how did you? Uh, I mean, you talked about the places where you've got them, but. Uh, where do you begin something like, I mean, I guess you, you do trace through the sources, but uh, it just seems, uh, I don't know. Well, they're so beautiful, you know, yeah. they're so intriguing. And, um, you know, and again, the, the, the idea of the visual as a primary form of knowledge transmission yeah. is crucial when you're talking about script. And this is one of the things that's interesting with Herodotus. It's not illustrated. We don't know what script he's actually looking at. Hmm. And we don't have the bronze cauldrons that he's describing, right? So, but once you start to have visual exemplars, um, then they can be copied and passed on. And so, for instance, um, the, um, the 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 alphabet that's attributed to Adam, right? Yeah. Sometimes to Adam, I'm, there's one script that gets attributed to various, you know, biblical figures. But as a specimen of letter forms, it gets copied over and over and over right. again, right? And it remains intact. So it's like somebody is seeing these. Um, someone is able to, to copy them. Um, there's an alphabet that's attributed to Ethicus Ister, a mythic, you know, eighth century traveler to the Far East who supposedly found this script and brought it. And again, you find instances of it in Germany and then in the British Isles. And this is the eighth and ninth and tenth centuries. So somebody is seeing these and copying them because they are dead on as copies. Wow. <laughs> And then you start to have this wonderful, you know, um, exhaustive study of things like, you know, antiquarian collections of coins. Mm. So you'll have someone like Bernard de Montfacon who swears he has been to, you know, the 18th century figure, he has been to every single cabinet of 
and antiquities among all of the intellectuals of Europe to copy because Montfaucon is desperate to find evidence of the biblical past. Right. And the earliest stuff he can find are coins from the Maccabean era, which is the Jewish uprising against Romans. So that's mm-hmm. really late. Um, so the visuals really have an authority to them um, yeah. and they contain so much information. Um, they're really interesting. And then there's intellectual instruments like compendia, charts right. and graphs that, you know, make an argument for sequential development or for comparison or any number of things. So, you know, and then there's all the people who copy everybody else's stuff. <laughs> right. That helps. Yeah. That it helps. Does. It's knowledge transmission. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Hilarious. Yeah. Um, what about uh, one of the, one of the uh, for me, one of the most uh, intriguing chapters was the one on magical angel celestial alphabets. I, I found that to be really interesting. Um, and can you talk about the connection between the alphabet and mysticism? I think it's an interesting. Yeah. Well, you know, again, um, I love that chapter because one of the things that you know drove me to this research was the collection of um, what are called Chaldean scripts in Edmund Fry's Pantographia, which I mentioned a little while earlier. And again, the Chaldean letters were also in that Baron von Helmont. It's like Chaldea, Chaldea, what is that? So Chaldea is again, you know, the ancient you know land of. Uh, modern day, you know, Jordan, Israel, you know, Syria, that that domain. And um, and so the notion of Chaldean letters was that these were the original letters. These are the earliest letters. And so the collection of, of Chaldeans in Fry is pretty extensive. Um, you know, there's, there, I forget exactly, but there might be 20 something of them. And those were again, um, letter forms that had a mystical and magical association. Um, And there's a wonderful scholar named Gideon Bohawk um, who has done really extensive work on this material. And another wonderful scholar, Sebastian Kempen, and, um, you know, and Marsha Kupfer. I mean, there are people who've done lots of really interesting work on on tracking these, uh, you know, through their transmission histories. Um, But uh, again, what's so interesting is that there's a whole tradition of, um, you know, putting letter forms on incantation bowls. Mm-hmm. And when um, Austin Henry Layard was excavating in Nineveh, he found incantation bowls from, you know, the third third century that had some of these early ring letters in them. These, you know, um, they call them ring letters because you can imagine a letter of the alphabet, but at the ends of its arms, it has circles. Yeah. Those are called ring letters. And they're called ring letters because they are actually supposed to be copied from the stars, from constellations. And where the ring is is where the star would be. So the idea that the letters come from the constellations allows them to be understood as the writing of God, right. as having divine source and identity. And so, you know, it's uh, before the book of nature, we have the letters of the stars. Mm-hmm. And um, so, you know, so the, the associations, they're really profound. Um, and they go back. I mean, the ring letters are early. Um, they're much earlier than the Kabbalah, which is, of course, one of the great mystical, you know, sort of systems. Um, and, uh, you know, the 
study of the letters of the alphabet within Jewish mysticism is quite developed. But again, Lurianic, you know, uh, Kabbalah is, is a medi- late medieval phenomenon, not an ancient phenomenon. Yeah, but it, it, it was very interesting. And, and one of the interesting things is um, I, I see a connection, too, with Asimic writing, because um, a lot of the when I looked at a lot of the alphabets in the book, there was, I mean, a lot of us when we've done Asimic writing have used things like that without necessarily knowing of ancient alpha, like ancient uh, variations of the alphabet and just sort of naturally going into those shapes. And, and yeah. uh, there's even, and I wish I could remember, but there are even some people who do associate even some Asimic writing with a kind, they infuse a, a magical properties and, and, and the idea into it. So it's all, it's all, it's all coming together in an interesting yeah. way. Like when I saw those alphabets, I thought, oh, I think I've been plagiarizing <laughs> from us, appropriating an ancient alphabet, alphabet variants. But uh, yeah, so that I, I, I think that's a really fascinating idea. And there's all kinds of um, things like that in the book. Um, another intriguing aspect of the book were the descriptions of discoveries of things like inscriptions that led to more knowledge about the origins and development of the alphabet. Can you share some, some one or some of those, such as the discovery in the Salom, uh, Siloam, Siloam, I don't know how to pronounce it, a tunnel in Jerusalem? Sure. Well, again, the 19th century is yeah. the moment at which this evidence starts to appear. And this had partly to do with transformations of the political regimes of the Near East and so forth, the breakup of the Turkish Empire, the presence of colonial you know, um, representatives who are interested in poking around in the earth and so forth. But the first major monument to be found is what's called the Eshmanazer sarcophagus. And it was discovered around 1855 um, by a French um, diplomat or consul, you know, who was who was in the area along the, um, uh, in near the city of Sidon, um, which is, modern-day Lebanon. Um, That area is referred to, by the way, as Phoenicia, but that's an anachronistic term because the Phoenicians never referred to themselves that way. They (laughs) referred to themselves by their city names. Um, So so this guy, you know, sees that it's one of those apocryphal tales. He's out walking, you know, he sees a pile of rubble. He's interested. He's looking for treasures. He, like, you know, goes down a shaft, and lo and behold, he finds this tomb, and here is this incredible engraved sarcophagus that belonged to um, King Eshmanazar. And, you know, it's from the 6th century BCE. It's absolutely gorgeous. It's basalt, and the inscription is highly developed and really elegant and beautiful. So um, so they have the inscription copied, and it's copied by somebody who sends it, believe it or not, to the Albany Institute in New York State, which at the Why time <laughs> was a highly regarded academic institution. Huh. And it gets published. It's a worldwide sensation, right? I mean, this is like discovery beyond discovery. It's like, oh, you know, we finally have a piece of evidence that corresponds to biblical stories that's found in the, you know, homeland. It's, you know, fantastic. So these things cause incredible sensations. They removed the sarcophagus and um, a French 
nobleman named Lunius decided to acquire it. And there's a whole story of the procession, you know, that takes this sarcophagus pulled by oxen who are bedecked with garlands, you know, (laughs) just a whole story. Um, but then there's other discoveries in that period that are quite, you know, famous, the Macia Steely, um, and then this uh, Siloam Tunnel discovery. And the Siloam Tunnel is a tunnel that connects Jerusalem with a spring that's outside the city walls. Right. So it's an underground tunnel. And they think it was probably dug sometime between the 8th and 7th centuries BCE to bring water into the city. Um, and so uh, an archaeologist named Edward Robinson had originally found this tunnel around 1838. I mean, found, you know, it's like, I'm sure people knew about this tunnel who were, you know, local folks, right. but it's kind of, you know, what discovery means in colonial terms and so forth. But he finds this, but he doesn't find the inscription, which is on the wall. And it's not until about 1880 that a um, a student of a German um, architect uh, is playing around. This is, you know, playing around underwater. Um, and his name is Jakob Eliahu. Jakob Eliahu apparently slips in the water in this tunnel and comes up from the surface and looks at this wall and goes, oh, that's an inscription. Wow. <laughs> goes and tells Dr. Schick. And Dr. Schick comes down. I can't know his don't know his first name. He comes down and apparently sits in the mud, you know, water up to his knees, copying this inscription by candlelight. Wow. Because, you know, these are unbelievable finds. <laughs> and keep in mind there were no major monuments. There were no huge buildings with early alphabetic inscriptions. Yeah. You don't get them that they because it wasn't that kind of culture. This is a nomad culture of shepherd kings, you know, hanging out in the desert. So if they wrote something on a shard of on a bit of pottery, or you know, that that's what there was. Um, so it's not like there were giant temples and they were all inscribed. It's not like there was anything like the palace at Nineveh or the or Ashurbanipal's library or the pyramids at Giza. No, none of it. Yeah, it's just it's just cool. You can imagine this person just playing around in that, and then suddenly looking and seeing. I know, and and not just not and also taking it seriously as something to, you know, not just passing by saying, "Oh, I don't know, whatever," and just you know, because maybe more today, I worry that we might be less. Uh, capable of know, knowing the significance of things if we you know we still find things i mean the the discovery by joseph and linda darnell and the um sinai in the 1990s was a dramatic transformation um of uh oh actually not th- there's the sinai but there's the um materials are actually um up the up the nile and it's like what you know how can there be these proto-alphabetic inscriptions from 1700 or so bce you know on the african continent not in the sinai not on the path of exodus but you know and again the path of exodus is something many archaeologists and travelers have retraced and there are all kinds of amazing inscriptions along that you know route um so we're still finding things i mean you may have seen this this is really funny the most recent kind of big discovery was um a, a, a comb for getting lice out of your hair 
Oh, really? Okay. It's, it's considered the earliest full sentence in, in an alphabetic inscription. Again, it's from around 1700 BCE, and the comb still has dead lice carcasses. Aye, aye, aye. Well, that's good to know that lice can, can uh, well, at least not degrade to the point of disappearing, <laughs> I guess. I don't know. You've got a nice hard exoskeleton. You can yeah, stick really. around for a few millennia. And the, and the sentence is something ex- like, you know, may this <laughs> may this work to get the your hair free of lice. <laughs> it's like, I hope it worked. <laughs> it might still work. I don't know. <laughs> that's, that's great. Um, um, you also included a coda where you discussed the alphabet and digital environments and ended with the idea that perhaps the alphabet is constantly being invented and reinvented yeah. through time. Alphabet has been a material thing, but now with so much writing and reading being done digitally, do you think anything is lost? I, I don't think you're going to say yes because I read the code after I wrote this question. <laughs> had to had to adapt the question. So, <laughs> well, you know, I think we're not going to get rid of alphanumeric notation for a long time, and yeah. it does undergird the internet. And sometimes that gives me absolute chills to think that you know, this set of signs that was invented by, you know, roaming desert nomads, you know, almost 4,000 years ago is now what, you know, our HTTP and TTP, you know, <laughs> what our protocols are all um, dependent on. I mean, you know, we, we could add the numerals in and those are Arabic and uh, numerals, but still um, it's remarkable. So I don't know, you know, I think, um, you know, the, the, the use of, written language is going to remain for some time. I think it's really criminal that we don't teach script in the elementary schools anymore. Yeah. But that's a different story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, no, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. No, no. Uh, it's just, I think, you know, the, um, you know, the, the evolution of functions, you know, it's like what we can use writing for um, in terms of communication you know, that continues. And, you know, there's nothing immaterial about digital, you know, no. forms. I mean, they're deeply digital, they're deeply material. I mean, they depend on a stack that is like, you know, so much deeper than, you know, a nice piece of print or handwriting, <laughs> uh, you know, give me a chisel and a rock, you know, the, the, those are, 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 you know, technologies that can make an inscription that will last on its own forever. You have yeah. something displayed on your screen, You've got to have, you know, so many levels of infrastructure to support that. It's crazy. Yeah, that's, good. that's interesting. What, what about, uh, I also am interested in the connection between your interest in the alphabet and visuality, your visual poetry and letterpress work, for instance. Yeah, well, you know, um, I got interested in letterpress uh, around 1970 when I went to California College of Arts and Crafts. And I was lucky enough to take a course that uh, the following year from a woman named Betsy Davids, who became my mentor, and she had bought a press for the college and she was teaching creative writing and printmaking. And I was a writer Um, in those days to get anything that looked like print. You had to handset it yourself or you had to have access to a lot of money and somebody who was willing to publish your work and do photo typesetting and and so forth. And I sure didn't have money and I didn't have access to <laughs> anything. So learning how to print letterpress was for me a way to legitimize my work as a writer. If you set that type, it's hard to remember now because digital printouts, you know, fonts, everybody's yeah. work can look like it's published. But the first time you pull a print 
of your text yeah. off the press and it's in print, it's just mm. unbelievable in terms of the sense of authority that it provides. So for me, letterpress was really important. And so I went on then to print letterpress books for more than 40 years. Um, well, I printed letterpress books for 40 years. I started printing letterpress a year or so earlier. Um, and I think, you know, my first book I printed in 1972, um, and it was printed in the context of school. Um, and it's a little book called Dark the Bat Elf. Yeah. 13 copies and hand bounded in red velvet covers. And it's a kind of combination of sort of Henry James, Christina Rossetti, and Rosemary's Baby. <laughs> it's just, it is the weirdest little book about, you know, this creature called Dark who takes a bunch of children into a tree underground and stuff happens. And yeah. it's probably not something that you know, would be acceptable in many places in America right now. And um, I made 13 copies of it and I gave it to my parents for Christmas. And <laughs> nice. My mother cried and my father laughed. <laughs> That's great. You had, you had your, your work already caused an effect in people. So you were, <laughs> I Again, my, I think my mother just looked and thought, what have I wrought? <laughs> But so for me, letterpress was, again, very much about legitimizing my work as a writer, but I became really interested in the visual qualities of, of type and of format and of setting. And there's the, on the one hand, the wonderful tactile, physical aspect of holding letters in your hand. Yeah. And, you know, when you're holding a, a form and you feel the weight of it, it's like, oh, that's a, that's a really interesting um, way to understand your own composition mm. in terms of a physical act. Um, and then I got really interested in, you know, page format and layout. So a book like um, From A to Z, which I, took me a year and a half to, to make um, between 1976 and 77, is a book where every piece of format is integrated into the meaning of the text. And, you know, it's that was a, a book where I had 48 drawers of type. I wanted to use every letter in every drawer, <laughs> make a text that made sense. And that was a gossipy, you know, sort of uh, account of uh, poets in the Bay Area. And <laughs> and I did it. And it's a crazy book. Um, so visual, visual aspects of writing became more and more interesting to me as ways to think about composition, um, as well as to reference um, sort of, you know, things in the world, you know, signage, found language, overheard language, speech, uh, narrative. So, you know, I, I could see the genres of text. In well, I, think the of, I think of your shell poem in in, uh, in Judith, for, that's a, such a beautiful, uh, beautiful visual poem. That's a, an example of uh, that uh, great uh, visual poetry that came out of uh, that time so well thank you yes I printed that at the West Coast Print Center around 1976 and it was a period in which I would say what I call graphic shaming and gender slamming were both <laughs> rampant and yeah. I got you know patted on the head and yeah. also dismissed it's like you know you're calling too much attention to yourself is mm -hmm. that a comment um you know why why is it's so dressed up it's so frivolous it's so 
you know, all about appearance. It's, you know, I mean, the, 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 the terms of dismissal of yeah. that work. Um, and, you know, it, nobody was doing it. No one was doing visual work on the West Coast at that time in, in yeah. poetry. When I finished um, the From A to Z book and I went to New York to the book fair and fell into, um, you know, a group of language poets there, there was much more receptivity to visual poetics and a community of people who were interested in working, Nick Piombino, for instance, and um, Charles Bernstein to some extent, or, you know, it, 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 there was just a kind of, again, receptivity. But the West Coast, um, hmm. I mean, the Print Center was basically men, and, you know, they were all very important poets, of course. <laughs> and, <laughs> so, and visual poetry was not an important form. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, we we feel, I mean, it, it's certainly just working on Judith and, and, and talking to a lot of different women, I, I got the impression that even now and i've certainly experienced it even even now you know how um i still i still hear that junk so i still hear yeah. that oh i know examples of that uh so yeah so that's why what we're what judith uh, i was i was glad to have everyone's involvement and yours especially in the in the book as well so so but yeah gender yeah. and when you were so you were working in the print shop you you actually worked there too as part mm -hmm. of yeah, so you worked with... I was the staff typesetter. Right. Um, there, there were a couple other people who, who did some of that work as well, but it was a great education. The West Coast Print Center had been set up um, uh, with, I believe, NEH funds, no, NEA funds to provide low-cost printing services for the literary community in the Bay Area. Mm. And so it was a fantastic opportunity. I met wonderful people. I got a great education about contemporary poetics and the yeah. range of things that were being published there was really broad. Um, lots of small, I mean, it's all small presses. Um, but, you know, from sort of long traditions of modern, you know, lyric humanist work to really experimental cutting edge kind of language poetry to right, personal yeah. thing. I mean, it was great. It was a great experience. Yeah, no, that's good. And, and there's um uh, from your site, there's uh, links to uh, uh, several of your artist books through um, artist books online. So they have a big archive of uh, of books and it's uh, yeah. the web. I had put that together. Artist books online was my project. You um, okay? I didn't oh, know. Yeah, which I started in two thousand and four, wow. and um, unfortunately, it's sort of not. It you can kind of find it through the Internet Archive, but the images are not available. It's sort of a mess. Um, I built it at Virginia University of Virginia when I was studying digital humanities stuff and wanted to build something. I brought it here to UCLA and we kept it alive for a while, quite a while. But then it just um, it's required maintenance that that the university right. wasn't willing to help me with. And so I need to, at least for my books, put them back up in some form. But still, there's a lot. At least it lists uh, 38 of your artist books and includes yeah. publication information and notes. And it's a very rich and fascinating archive of your work Thank and you. others' work. And and of course, you're so prolific and you and you do different things all the time. Uh, I just I found it um, I found it really uh, really uh, it's it's really interesting. And you also talk about the community that you were involved in too, and that's that's something I care about as well. So it's part yeah. of what I do. So yeah, I found it really, really interesting. One of the uh, books, um, an earlier book too, is As No, As no Storm or the Any 
court party <laughs> came out next. I thought that was good. You mentioned that was wor- the work was done outside of any community practice, but its production led to your engagement in community, thanks to how helpful uh, David's was. And, and you also talked about the role of community. Can you tell us about your experience of, of working with her and the community you became involved in? Sure. Um, again, Betsy Davidson been my mentor. She's still a good friend. And she and her then partner, Jim Petrillo, had a, a press called Rebus Press, and they brought me, uh, she got a grant and decided to do, to do a book of mine. So I spent, you know, a summer in a garage with her and she was an incredibly good printer and very, very careful. But also they were doing performance work and conceptual work. And um, they invited me to to work with them. We did performances and traveled together and uh, and we went to book fairs and it just meant that I got to know people. Um, so she really was, um, they both were um, very generous in helping me launch my, you know, sort of social connections to various literary worlds. So that was terrific. Um, As No Storm, <laughs> the Any Poor Party is a book about a, a part, a New Year's party that my parents gave that basically no one came to. Um, and it was sort of a, a disaster. So it's it's about a shipwreck, um, but it was <laughs> lots of fun. Um, and uh, yeah, I've done, I, you know, I did about 38 um, of my own edition to artist books, I've published, you know, a dozen books with other small presses and yeah. creative prose and so forth, and then my academic life. And the final letterpress book I, I printed was called Stochastic Poetics. Yeah. And I finished that in 2012. And then I had a retrospective that traveled and started at Columbia College in Chicago. Mm-hmm. And um, Stochastic Poetics um, had, doesn't have a single straight line in it, yet it's all letterpress. So I was pushing against the quadrature, which is the basic sort of structure of letterpress. But the work arose from my interest in stochastic processes as cultural processes around the question um, of how do literary forms evolve? How do they change? What is it that transforms forms across time and through communities of practice? And the concept of stochastic is nonlinear and, you know, nonlinear and complex emergent forms. Um, so the book, you know, looks at uh, various, um, it looks at Aristotle, it borrows from Aristotle's poetics, it borrows from various uh, theories of complexity, um, and it also appropriates and um, imagines various contemporary voices all involved in this process of transforming poetics in Mm. relationship to circumstances and events. All all fascinating stuff. Do you have any plans to make more artist books or or do they they tend to come more organically for you, the artist book, like this kind of? Yeah, you know, I'm not going to stop making books. (laughs) I did get into this Substack thing, which I've really enjoyed. Yeah, it's Um, fun. Yeah, it's really fun. And um, I've been wanting to do these little short pieces on the memory life of things, um, you know, which are on the Substack blog. But um, no, I mean, I'll make other books ahead to be sure. Um, it's, uh, again, I had a few things to do in the last couple of years. Yeah, especially this this book too, Inventing yeah, the taking up a lot of time. Alphabet book, and you know, I just I wanted I'm I'm going to retire from academic uh, my academic position at the end of this school year, and so I really kind of wanted to wrap up all of these academic projects, 
and shift gears back into just doing my own artwork and writing and so forth. Makes sense. Have you, have you, I, I skipped over a question that was really, but I wanted to save it. Have you ever invented your own alphabet or, 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 or done a variation, I should say, on an alphabet? Yeah. I did try to invent a script once, you know, just a font. And I have to say, the only title that would have really adequately described it would have been Cro-Magnon. <laughs> I'm not a gifted type designer. <laughs> I'll leave that to the experts. That's good. Is there anything else you'd like to add before I before I read my my note of praise? Before I have oh. Well, you know, I guess the one thing that, you know, is interesting as we, you know, get to, you know, think about the span of our own work um, and the amount of time that we've been involved just in in poetics and visual poetics and production, and you've been a publisher as well and so forth, is just, you know, the way in which different technologies afford different possibilities and that the accessibility of digital it tools has really, I think, put you know, um, you know, sort of possibilities in the hands yeah. of people who, had they had to, as we did in in my day, had to learn letterpress in order to print something yeah. or learn calligraphy in order to design something. You know, it's put it's put those possibilities into you know a, a broad range of of hands, and I think that's you know something that really came out as you were putting Judith together and yeah. uh, the other projects. So that's terrific. You know, visuality is no longer sort of some strange you know side you know interest of a handful of people, but it's able to be incorporated into a lot of poets practice. Yes, I, I don't, I can't even imagine trying to um, make Judith without having some kind of, I mean, access to people through email and everything else. And the weird thing too, is we, we had started working on it before the pandemic. And then when the pandemic started, um, just like sometimes it was hard to get in touch with people or sometimes people had COVID or, you know, or someone close to them have or, or have. So it's, it's, yeah, it was, it was a, a fraud time for me. It kind of gave me something to focus on. And while I was in lockdown too, it was like, okay, I have this project. I can kind of not right. pay into that outside world for a bit. And I right. can focus on, on this community and, and do these things. So, yeah. Yes, it kept us alive to have these projects because it was rough. It was really hard. It's it's uh, continues. So my note of praise for inventing the alphabet. Inventing the alphabet took me on a fascinating journey through religion, history, mysticism, archaeology, and more. Its main thesis is that the alphabet was invented rather than discovered and is continuing to be a vital, important tool of communication. It's a mammoth book with numerous samples of the alphabet as discovered on coins, vessels, in tunnels, and waterways, studied in compendia, tables, and documents, and collected over centuries. Inventing the alphabet made me question the role of the alphabet, how the biases of its researchers led to misconceptions and its use as an ideological tool. To quote from the book, the alphabet was not created to do the administrative work of a king to take care of accounting or to enable monumental inscriptions. It emerged from marginal, modest, small-scale marks and signs. I found the work engrossing and wide-ranging with a healthy dose of whimsy, which is also present in Joanna 
Drucker's other works, including her artist books, Inventing the Alphabet engages with materiality and takes us on a close-up journey inside the alphabet, including the controversies surrounding its origins. Yeah. Thank you so much, Amanda. This is just an honor and a treat. Thank you. Thank you, Joanna, for being on the show. And thanks to Jennifer Peterson for the intro and outro, to Charles Earl for processing, and to all of you for listening and sharing the episodes each month. We still have the Angel House Press crowdfunding campaign is still going on. Uh, we're raising money to help pay our contributors, but we've all, we're at 113% already. So we've, we've, uh, people have been amazing, and the presses who've donated uh, publications and swag and stuff have been amazing, but I'll keep putting that link up and uh, we, we might, I would love, the more money we raise, the more we'll be able to pay the contributors. So that will be good. Stay tuned for our March episode, which will be our 100th episode. So that's that's kind of wow. a, a, a milestone. So this will be another in our extra literary thread where we discuss page adjacent aspects of literary, small press and visual poetry subjects. Our next guest is book doctor, Christine McNair also a writer. She'll talk about her job in book conservation as well as book binding and other interesting subjects. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Small Machine Talks. The Small Machine Talks.